John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. And the tenth hour, just so you know, was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And for those of us, again, in the English, it is anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You should be called Cephas. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So as we start this morning, I want to give you a little bit of a synopsis of some of the things that are going on here, but also a little bit of the synopsis of the Gospel. So I usually do this as we start a new book of the Bible, and I intentionally didn't do it the first two weeks, just again because of the time of the year and other people that are visiting. But for us, as we go through these lessons and as we do some teaching, I think this is always very important. There is a belief that this was written about 90 A.D. So when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, this probably was written 50 plus years after Jesus actually was crucified, died on the cross, rose again, and was ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as we study this, we know that in total, John the Apostle wrote about five books. So he wrote this one, he wrote the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, of course, he was in captivity at that time on the Isle of Patmos. But as we consider this gospel, this gospel is quite different than the other three. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered to be the synoptic gospels, meaning that they are very similar in their language and very similar in the chronological order in which things are put in place. But as we look at the Gospel of John, John is far more thematic than it is chronological. You won't see Jesus' temptation of being taken into wilderness as we see in Matthew chapter 4. That's not here in the Gospel of John. You also don't see a genealogy that you'll see in a couple of the other Gospels as well. So John is very thematic. And let me share with you some of these themes as we consider again the Gospel of John. 
So as we get to the end of John chapter 1, we know that that first chapter has everything to do with the Word coming and the Word coming to live amongst us. Jesus came to be the light of the world, to come into this as well. The next chapter we're going to go into after this is obviously chapter 2, and this is where the wedding feast, where Jesus turns the water into wine, his first miracle is noted in John chapter 2. And there's a lot of thematic imagery things that go on with that as we're going to discover as we go through this. John chapter 3 is Jesus and Nicodemus, and also for God so loved the world. There's that big theme that so many of us, the first Bible verse we learn is John 3.16. As we move into chapter 4, we're going to be dealing with the woman at the well. And why that's important is the doctrine there that's taught to us is how to worship God in spirit and truth. So John chapter 4 is going to show that to us. It's also going to deal with the woman at the well and the various things that she was getting confused be between the spiritual and the physical. But Jesus talked about this living water that she would never thirst again. And you will also see in John a few places where the word never shows up. And that's one of those places in John chapter 4 where Jesus says you will never thirst again when you understand what this is about. Then another theme that we're going to look at is the bread of life, and we see that in John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What does that mean? So you look at the water in chapter 4, and you look at the bread of life in John chapter 6, and you go, what is that all about? And we're going to explore that when we get there. John chapter 8 is an interesting chapter because there are many things that are going on. The adulterous woman is there, right, where Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, Rabbi, they've gone, they've gone away. And Jesus says, I accuse you. I don't accuse you either, as those people haven't accused you. And then he says to her, go and sin no more. But there's also that theme in John chapter 8 about freedom, freedom in Christ. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But Jesus also says in John chapter 8 that I am the light of the world. The light that dispels the darkness. And as we go back to John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And John chapter 8 is going to talk about Jesus being the light of the world and what that means for us. John chapter 10 is what I consider to be the shepherd chapter, where Jesus talks about him being the shepherd, the good shepherd, and how the good shepherd knows the voice of his sheep and how he looks after them. And that is important for us because that, again, is metaphorical. There's imagery going on. Jesus was the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb that came to take away the sins of the world. And yet he talks about being the good shepherd and looking after his sheep. We're going to explore that and go, what is that all about? Then you move on to John chapter 13. This is where Jesus coming to lead, Jesus coming to die on the cross, still shows us servant leadership. John chapter 13 is washing the disciples' feet. And that is really a humbling thing for us to consider that God, coming in the form of man, knelt down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of the disciples. That is a staggering thing for us to consider about how Jesus came to serve. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14 actually goes through this whole idea of what it looks like for Jesus to live amongst us 
to Jesus to die on the cross and to Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And we're going to explore that. Now that's an important chapter because right after that, obviously chronologically, comes John 15. But John 15 is the vine chapter where Jesus says, I am the vine. So not only am I the way, the truth, and life, I am the vine. And you are the branches. And as branches, you feed off of me. You come to me understanding that I am your Savior, that I am your Lord, and that, again, He is going to provide the nourishment, the sustenance that we need as Christians. So it's tapping into the root, it's tapping into the vine that we are the branches. And what does that look like for us? Then John chapter 16 is where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit being with men, convicting them of their sin. You know as well as I do that when you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit was nudging you, was poking you, was prodding you. The interesting piece, regardless of what your theology is, there is always the opportunity for you to say no to the poking of the Holy Spirit. Even once you become a Christian, you can say no to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sometimes more of a gentleman than I think he should be, but he allows us to make those choices. So even within the sovereignty of God, we have this little piece where we have free will. God allows us to have free will and allows us to make some choices. That's why it says that the Holy Spirit in John 16 is with men and women. The word there is actually mankind, all of people, convicting them of their sin. Then John chapter 17 is broken up into three parts. This is the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. So the first third of that chapter, he is just talking between him and his father. That's something for us to consider, that we talk to our father sometimes before we engage in talking to him about anything else because we realize that our spiritual well-being, our spiritual self-care is extremely important. Then Jesus prays in the second third of that chapter. Then he prays for his disciples, knowing full well that when he dies, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, that he is going to go and these people are going to take over, with Matthias, of course, taking over from Judas, so that there's still 12. There's still 12 that are going to go out. And of course, as we study human history, as we look at this, we realize that many of them suffered for the sake of the gospel in the early church, and some of them died some pretty horrific deaths. And we may consider that when we get to John chapter 17. Now, when Jesus does die on the cross, and he rises again, and he's made known to the witnesses and to the disciples, he meets them, and in John chapter 20, he breathes into them the Holy Spirit. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we see in John chapter 16, the with experience. He's with men convicting them of their sin. John chapter 20 is the indwelling. And then we move into the book of Acts, of course, where we have that upon experience where the Holy Spirit gives us power for ministry. So that's a brief synopsis of what we're going to be looking at. I think it's important because John, as I mentioned at the beginning, is very thematic. And we need to go quite slow through this gospel so that we don't miss anything. So even the fact that we've got through the first chapter here in three weeks, we're probably not going to go at that torrid pace. And we're probably going to go slower because there's so much for us to consider. There's even going to be the consideration next week as we go into John chapter 2 of that first miracle. Why was water getting turned into wine? 
such an important piece, especially at this wedding feast, is going to be something for us to consider. Some other things that I want us to be paying attention to is the words and the verbiage that comes up here. So we're going to see the signs, the works. John chapter 2 is water into wine. John chapter 4 is the healing of the nobleman's son. John chapter 4 I talked about already is also going to talk about the woman at the well. But there's word signs. Jesus says, I am. He makes his claim and he lives up to it. Life is constantly spoken about. John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 1 almost mirror each other with this whole idea of the light coming into the world and giving us life. And then as we look at John chapter 5 and 1 John chapter 5, those are almost mirror images too about eternal life and what that's going to look like for us. Eternal life. So we'll get to that in John chapter 5. As we think again of word signs, the word believe will appear over 80 times. Over 80 times in the gospel, the word believe is going to show up for us. So you can be one of those people that is a universalist, you believe that everybody's going to gain heaven, but there's a piece of believing for us is actually accepting, receiving, and choosing to be reconciled to the Father through repentance. So there is much more to believe than actually mentally thinking that something exists. There's actually a mental acceptance. There is a mental approach to this whole thing, and we're going to explore what that looks like. The word must appears several times in the Gospel of John. John 3, verse 7 says, you must be born again. John 3.14 talks about how the Son of Man must. There's these must words in here. And it's going to go on. As I mentioned as well, the word never shows up in John chapter 4, that you will never thirst again. But we'll also look at that in John chapter 6 as we consider the bread of life. The word never, the whosoever belongs there as well in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3. So the gospel is very much written to the whosoever's. But as we again explore John chapter 1, let me give you 15 names of Jesus. 15 different names in just the first chapter alone. He is the Word. Logos, remember we went over that. He is light. He's the only begotten of the Father. He's the only begotten Son. He is Lord. He is the Lamb of God. He is Rabbi. He is Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, he's king of Israel, he's the son of man, he is the Christ, he is life, and he is the Messiah. So if you're taking notes, I realize I rattled through those pretty quick, but there are 15 different titles for Jesus in just the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Often when somebody comes to Christ, we encourage them to either read the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark, so that they kind of get an understanding of who this Jesus is that they're believing and accepting as Lord and Savior. Let's consider then further these last few verses, starting at verse 35 of John's Gospel. This section now enters into the first disciples that are chosen. So when you read the different accounts, when you look at the different Gospels, they appear to kind of show up in a different way sometimes. But we realize that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were fishing, and Jesus walks by and says 
Come with me and I will make you fishers of men. So we have these two that connect. We also see here in this first chapter about how Jesus calls Andrew. And Andrew goes to get his brother Simon Peter. And then we see Philip and Nathaniel. So by the time we're actually done the first chapter of John's Gospel, six out of the twelve were in place. James and John. Right? So we have Peter and Andrew, the two brothers. And then we also have Philip and Nathaniel. So you have six out of the twelve that are already called and chosen and spoken about here in this first chapter. Important for you to realize. But here's something else that's, that's intriguing. When Jesus sees Nathaniel sitting under a tree, there's something obviously that he catches on here. Now, I potentially must, must think that at some point here, I don't know if he can read Nathaniel's mind, but he knows that Nathaniel has a pure heart. He knows that as he looks at this fellow sitting under a tree, that he's going to be one of the twelve that's going to be called. And he says to him, I saw you sitting under the tree, and I know you're pure of heart. Therefore, I want you on my team. That's really what's taking place here. Something for us to consider. When Jesus looks at us, when Jesus looks at our hearts, when Jesus looks at our thought pattern, does he say to us, you're pure of heart, I want you on my team. And I'm not just talking about the Christian team, I'm talking about the team that goes out and evangelizes. That's really what the disciples are being called to do. The disciples are being called, yes, to be Christ's followers, and they're called to be righteous and upstanding, but Jesus is actually asking them to be on his evangelistic team. And he says to Nathaniel, I want you on my team because I love your heart, I love your mind, I love what you're about. And that's what he's talking to him about. And Nathaniel actually says, before he meets Jesus, he says, can anything really good come out of Nazareth? Well, look at us. Can anything really good come out of Minotonus? Can anything really good come out of Swan River? Or Bozeman? Or White Beach? I mean, seriously. That's, what, that's what's getting asked here. Because otherwise, that sentence wouldn't be important. We could care less what Nathaniel said about Jesus. Because he's saying, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One, he's actually coming out of Nazareth. Obviously, Nazareth was a village that wasn't highly sought after for people to live in and wasn't thought about much. But think about your world and think about where you've come from. And think about what God has called you to do. And where God is leading you. Where God is leading your children. Where God is leading your grandchildren. Oh, that guy's from Swan River. Not a big deal. So who cares? Because it matters not where you're from. It matters totally as to what God is calling you to do and whether or not you're going to be obedient. And these guys... These 12 that are called are going to be obedient. And even Jesus, when he goes and knocks on Judas's door, Jesus knows where the story is going to go three and a half years later. But he chooses him because he knows that this guy is going to play a part in the kingdom of God. Bizarre thing to comprehend, bizarre thing to think about. But that's actually what's going to happen. 
So we have this taking place here in John chapter 1 where Jesus is starting to put in place his team, his evangelistic team. And we actually look at the apostles, and not only is John the apostle, the one that wrote this, he is often called John the Evangelist because that's what he was called to do. So we have these 12 evangelists, as it were, that were called to walk with Jesus. That's what's going on here in this chapter. But we've talked in the past, too, about the cost of discipleship. So when you think about these men being called, it was going to cost them something. They're believed to have been in their late teens, early 20s when they're called by Jesus, but it cost some of them their careers. So James and John, they continued to fish, they continued to be in the boat, but as you look at the ministry of Jesus and the travel that they did, they put a lot of that on hold. So I want you to consider that as we turn this morning to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, this is an interesting story here. People wanted to follow Jesus, at least in their minds they wanted to follow Jesus, but they were often not willing to commit. So Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But this fellow said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And I'm going to stop there. Just as I've done research into this, the burying the father doesn't necessarily mean that the father's already dead and the funeral's coming up. It's actually the fact that he was going to go look after his father, his aged father, and get his father into the grave. So there was actually a long time period that this guy was asking for from Jesus before he was going to commit. So where it says, let me go and bury my father, that's really getting the father through old age, you know, through those geriatric moments, and actually getting the guy into the grave. So that's, that's a long process. So Jesus says in verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Verse 62, but Jesus said to him, no one having his hand to the plow and looking back is for the kingdom of God. Don't make a deal with God with regards to what he's calling you to do. Don't say, God, I will go anywhere you want me to go, but first of all, i got to make sure I've got a certain amount of dollars in my bank account. That's really what's going on here. These guys are trying to make deals with Jesus, saying, yeah, I, I'm, I like the fact that you're the Messiah. I like the fact that you're the anointed one. I like the fact that you're calling me, that you want me to go, but i got things to do first of all. Obedience, as we look at the Word of God, and as we looked at the life of Paul, especially the last two chapters, chapters 27 and 28 of Acts, was about obedience. And Paul didn't try to put all of his affairs in order before he branched out and was obedient. In Luke chapter 9 here, we see the cost of obedience. And as Jesus called those disciples, the first six that we see in John chapter 1, there was a cost to them. But it's historical in nature. We've talked about 1 Chronicles 21, where Ornan actually owns the threshing floor, which is Mount Moriah, which is now where the Temple Mount is, where the Muslims have a chunk of the land. 
where again the third temple is actually going to be put in place. But Ornan has this threshing floor, and David comes to him knowing that another temple has to be built. But, but David has blood on his hands, and so Solomon ends up building the temple. But Ornan says to David, look, at you're the king, just have the land. You want to build a temple? Here it is. Have the threshing floor. Have this holy place, this Mount Moriah, where Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. You can just have it. And David's response is this. No, I will pay full price for this because I will never do anything for God that it's not going to cost me something. But that's obedience. The disciples gave up a lot. It cost them something to follow Jesus. It eventually cost most of them their lives as martyrs. We should never approach the throne of God without realizing that any commitment we make to Him might cost us something. Don't sit down and make a deal with God without you weighing the costs. It says also in Luke that when a fellow sits down to build a house, if we had to rebuild this church, we would sit down with the blueprint, with the blueprints, and we'd figure out how much material, we'd figure out what the total costs were. That's what you need to do. If God is calling you to do something, you need to be obedient, but you do have to weigh the costs. But don't let the costs scare you from moving forward. Just know full well that anything you do for God has to cost you. There is a cost to obedience. But as we are obedient, our generation, and regardless of how old you are, I'm in your generation now, I'm almost 60. <laughs> as we consider our children and our grandchildren, as we pray, we want to pray that the Holy Spirit nudges our children and grandchildren towards obedience regardless of what the cost is. Because we all will stand in front of a holy God someday taking account for the things we did, good and bad. We don't want our children to wander away from what it might cost them to be obedient. As a last thought, I talked to somebody else today and kind of, or this week in a, in a bit of a weird context. Uh, but this person is in missions and this person is in a country where they're in a neighborhood full of Muslims. And they believe full well that at some point it very well might cost them their life for speaking about speaking out against Islam and speaking for Jesus Christ. I mean, when you say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you say Muhammad the prophet has nothing to do with salvation, and you're living in a Muslim neighborhood, that becomes pretty fiery immediately. So this person realizes that it actually might cost them their physical life in the here and now. And they've committed to that because that's what they're called to do, because of the obedience in their life. The disciples knew partially what they were getting into, but they just knew that they were called. And whether Jesus was from Nazareth, whether he was born in Bethlehem, whether he spent the first couple years of his life in Egypt, it did not matter. 
It did not matter to them. They just knew that this was the anointed one, that this was the Messiah, and that they had to be obedient to what Jesus was calling them to do. Don't be jealous of these 12 people. Don't think because they walked almost hand in hand with Jesus for three and a half years that they have more than we have. We can have just as much as disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century in 2020 as those 12 disciples had in the early church because of Jesus dying on the cross. As you leave here today, let me encourage you to consider obedience, sacrifice, cost, and legacy. Legacy. What does it look like for you to sit down with your children and grandchildren and say, you know what? Regardless of what is God's calling you to do, you have to be obedient to that. It might be giving up the comforts of Canada. It might be giving up a big paycheck. As Christians, we're not supposed to be living for a paycheck. We're supposed to be obedient regardless of what it costs us. When I have a pastor friend in Kenya eating leaves off of a tree, and that's how he has to feed his family for a week, but he's doing that because of obedience, it causes me to step back and look at my life and go, hmm, I've got things pretty easy over here. Obedience is paramount to everything, and we see this in the first chapter, that these men are called, they were obedient. Finally, the last verse I want you to consider is again where it says about Jesus and the angels, the comings and goings as it were. Genesis chapter 28 is the story of Jacob's ladder where Jacob was so much in tune with God that the angels ascended and descended on this ladder that he was ministered to. And Jesus is the same. Matter of fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26 that he could call down a legion of angels and they would actually be at his bidden call, his beck and call, and that they would have to do everything. So don't think that this can't happen for you. That you can't have angels ministering to you as you are obedient. Obedience is the most important piece here, but God looks after His own. But don't always think that that's physical protection because it has cost some people their heads. And this other person I was talking about that lives in this Muslim neighborhood, it very well could cost him his head at some point and he doesn't care. The Gospel of John talks about the life of this perfect person, this model for us, the metaphors that we'll see, the realities that we'll see. But again, don't forget it's about obedience. Obedience at all costs. Knowing that the angels will minister to us, that God will look after us, that God will lead us and guide us. And as Jacob and Jacob's ladder in Genesis chapter 28, as he saw these angels ascending and descending, there was this constant flow. We have that. We have Jesus' lifeblood pouring through us, this constant flow Spiritually, we have this constantly available to us as He leads us and guides us into all truth as we're obedient. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for your angels that guard us and guide us. Thank you for Jesus coming to earth, dying on the cross. Father, thank you for calling us to be disciples. And we're faithful at least to that point in our lives of accepting Jesus. But help us to be faithful to everything that you're calling us to do. Help us to be faithful as we lead our children, as we lead our grandchildren, knowing full well that you are going to return, that we're going to spend eternity with you then in heaven. But we're also going to stand in front of you as a holy God and be accountable for the things we've done, good and bad. Help us to never forget these things. We ask for your blessings, not because we deserve them, but as we read in Ephesians, you give us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, and we constantly crave that especially in this chaotic world. Thank you again. Pray blessings on these people. Thank you for 2020, our new year. May we go forward again looking in expectation for people to come to Jesus. I thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week.